So go ahead and be turning, like I said, to Romans chapter 8. We'll, we'll start just in kind of the, the first verse of Romans chapter 8 this, this morning when we, when we touch on the text. The topic at hand is election, um, and I, I feel like Romans chapter, eight is, it, Romans chapter 8 and 9 are probably 8, 9, 10 through 11 are probably in Scripture the location where this subject matter is dealt with most completely. Um, if, if you haven't read through the, this um, chapter in the book, I would encourage you to go through the Systematic Theology book, read through this chapter. I feel like Grudem does a uh, as, as decent a job as one who holds an opinion can of being fair to all sides. Um, I, I, I'm going to point out a place where I think that he, he errs here and where I think that oftentimes as we approach this subject, we err as, as well. Okay, so, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to read from, uh, a section here. So, I want to give him some credit. I think he does a good job at pointing out where the differences lie in the camps here. I think he does less than perfect job in um, presenting the conclusions from that. Um, so here, when, when we're thinking about election, there tends to be two major camps that form uh, around this. Um, these are not going to be new terms for you. If they are, I encourage you just to go and um, do a little bit of reading on both sides. Um, with that being said, probably either side that you read on is going to be like strongly confirmed in their convictions. So just expect as you do read from both sides that you're going to get a, this is the way that it is. Um, so don't be surprised when Calvinists are Calvinists and Arminians are Arminians, right? Um, but that's the two major camps that, that tend to, to form around this idea. Um, and if you haven't, like I say, if you haven't um, ever kind of thought about election and run into these terms, Calvinism and, and Arminianism, again, um, I encourage you to, to do that outside of this, but uh, I think here Grudem does a good job of explaining the differences. So I'm going to, I'm going to, or the, he does a good job explaining what I believe to be like the key um, separator here. So he says, both Calvinists and Arminians agree. So he starts out with an agreement. Uh, both Calvinists and Arminians agree that God's commands in Scripture reveal to us what He wants us to do, and both agree that the commands in Scripture invite us to repent and trust in Christ for salvation. Therefore, in one sense, both agree that God's will, that God wills that we be saved. It is the will that He reveals to us explicitly in the gospel invitation. I'm going to read that one more time because this is kind of a point of, of, of agreement between the two sides, and I think that's good to highlight. So both Calvinists and Arminians agree that God's command in Scripture revealed to us what He wants us to do, and both 
agree that the commands in Scripture invite us to repent and trust in Christ for salvation. That is a central, that is one of the core tenets of Christianity, right? So both both Arminians and Calvinists are going to be in heaven, okay? Because ultimately the core of what we agree on is the fundamental thing that leads us to Christ in in salvation, right? Um, So therefore, uh, in one sense, both agree that God wills that we be saved. It is the will that he reveals to us explicitly in the gospel invitation. If if you have read any at at all uh, in this subject matter, you will be able to see... Um, his leanings here. So, um, if you haven't read this book, he is a Reformed theologian. Um, he holds to Calvinist uh, view, um, not a um, double predestination view, um, but he is a five-point Calvinist. Um, and when you read read him, if you haven't caught this already in the book, you haven't been paying attention because a lot of this kind of bleeds through in things that he's been saying in um, in the, the book up to this point, and you can see it particularly even in the wording that he chooses in the last part of that paragraph where he says, it is the will that he reveals to us explicitly in the gospel invitation. Even that wording kind of... Um, points towards the direction in, in which he leads, uh, he, he leans um, in, as far as his understanding of, of this subject matter. <clears throat> he continues on saying here, but both sides must say that there is something else that God deems more important than saving everyone. Okay, I'm going to read that again because I don't know that both camps would, would necessarily agree with that statement. Or maybe agreed with that statement um, with the same fervor, but I do believe that that statement is a true statement, right? So this is not the point that I disagree with him on. So he says, both sides must also say that there is something else that God deems more important than saving everyone, right? There is something that God desires more and th- this is this is what both sides would say ultimately if you press down on one side and ultimately if you press down on another side on the idea of why aren't why is everyone not saved then ultimately both sides would funnel down to an to a to an idea of something that God desires more than the salvation of everyone right now they're going to disagree um in, in, in a major way on what those two points are, and he, po- he points those out here as well. So both sides, he says, must also say that there is something else that God deems more important than saving everyone. He goes on to say, Reformed theologians say that God deems his own glory more important than saving everyone. So the Calvinist view over here on one side um, is going to say that God's glory is preeminent over the salvation of everyone. And then he lays out um, the other other side of the, the argument here. So one side, the glory of God is more important than the salvation of, of everyone. And then on the other side, he says, and that God's glory is furthered by, well, he's not 
yet on the other side uh, of the argument yet. So this is kind of a two-parter that he gives to the to the Calvinist view here. So on the Calvinist view, he would say that um, God's glory is more important than saving everyone, and that God's glory is also furthered by the fact that some are not saved. Right. So that in the in 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 election and reprobation, they would say that um, that God is ultimately glorified. Um, more fully, more completely, um, in 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 that understanding of of reality. He then goes on to the Armenian theologians, and he says the Armenian theologians also say that something else is more important to God than salva- than the salvation of all people, namely the preservation of man's free will. Okay, so he lays out on one side and. Even even in saying it, it, it almost feels like like an like an unfair assessment here. So on one side, he says this camp holds to God's glory being preeminent over everything, including the salvation of all. And then on the other side, he says this camp holds that um, the preservation of of human freedom um, is preeminent over all, as though it, it, at least it it comes across as as though. Um, the Armenian camp would hold this position in such a way as to say that the freedom of man is preeminent over the glory of God. I don't think that that's a fair assessment of the way that um, many Armenians approach um, human freedom, right? Um, and and that, that comes out in his conclusion. Um, and I want to point that I want to point it out because, I think that the conclusion that he draws here, um, I think it puts a division where a division does not belong. Okay, and and I think I, I'm I'm putting this as as far as like a logical division. I think he makes a logical error in his conclusion that he draws. So follow with me in his conclusion, and I'm going to point out. The error that I believe he makes in drawing the conclusion that he comes to here. So he says, so, that's in conclusion to what he's been saying. So, in a reformed system, God's highest value is his own glory. And in an Arminian system, God's highest value is the free will of man. So that's the the two sides that he's kind of placing up there. These are two distinctly different concepts of the nature of God, and it seems, he says, that the Reformed position has much more explicit biblical support than the Arminian position does on this question. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious, did anybody see the logical flaw that he, is, that he has made there? Okay, I, I want to point it out in the, in, in, by using the, the phrase that he says. So, he says, so, in a Reformed system, God's highest value is His own glory, and in an Arminian system, God's highest value is the free will of man. And I want to say, that's a, that's a category flaw that you're making there, okay? Because you can have, and I'm not saying this is the way that it is, okay? I'm not saying that this is the way it exists, but I'm trying to point out the logical failings, okay? Um, you could have a world in which God is highly glorified and magnified, potentially maximally glorified and magnified, and where creatures are free, 
right? God is, God is not limited in that way, right? It is, it is a flaw in logic to conclude that such freedom denies a high view of God's glory, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that Scripture doesn't point to one view or the other, but the conclusion that we draw is a false one if we believe that someone who sees the world around them, reads Scripture, interprets the world around them as seeing free creatures or or creatures with a certain type of freedom or liberty, and believing that that world maximally glorifies God. Those are not mutually exclusive realities, right? God could, there's no logical contradiction in this, create a world in which creatures are free and He is maximally glorified. So He makes a flaw here. And I think oftentimes when we approach this idea and we're considering the two realities that we might, or the, maybe the two major camps that we might fall into here, that when we come at it, we make similar flaws when considering the other side. Right? We make similar flaws no matter which side we are on when considering the view that the other side might hold. Right? And the reason that I want to kind of point this out here is so that we can see even someone well-trained in this, someone who dedicated their life to this, can lay out true thoughts and draw false conclusions. Right? Draw false conclusions. Um, so I want to lay that out because as we dig through Scripture today, uh, I want us to be very aware of the complexity of this subject, the depth of this subject, the the way that this subject and and the way that it can tend to like cause us to have preconceived ideas about a, about someone who holds one view or someone who who holds another view and how how those ideas can be flawed. Right. Um, So that when we one thing that I'm not going to be doing as we go through this subject is I'm not going to be trying to win you to one side or the other. Right. Um, I know for a fact within this room that there are people in both camps. Okay, you you serve and worship among believers who have different views than you in this regard. Right. And that oftentimes we unfairly place ideas on the other sides that they themselves would not agree with, right? So this is a difficult subject matter. We are not unified in our individual, like when you come to this subject, you and I will probably disagree on things. That's okay. Right? We agree. I'm going to read the agreement piece here one more time because I think that this is absolutely fundamental to this. So he says, Both Calvinists and Arminians agree that God's command in Scripture revealed to us that He want what He wants us to do, and both agree that the commands in Scripture invite us to repent and trust in Christ 
for salvation? Do you believe that Scripture calls us to repentance and trusting in Christ for our salvation? Common ground. Right? This is common ground that both are going to agree on. And both are going to agree on, I believe at Mount Carmel anyways, that God's glory has no equal. God's glory has absolutely no equal. There is nothing in what He has created that comes even remotely close to Him. I think that we will all agree that Scripture shows clearly that in the work that He is doing in Christ, His aim is to glorify Christ. Christ exalted above all creation. First fruits of us who believe, right? And I believe that every one of us also believes that when we stand before God, He will not say, well, you were robotically going through motions, so you will get off the hook. You are responsible before your Creator. We all agree on this, right? We all agree on this. So God is glorified, and we seek Him to be glorified maximally. There is no greater aim for the life of the believer than the glory of God, right? You find your greatest fulfillment and satisfaction as a believer in seeking the glory of God, right? So now, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in this text. Um, there's several reasons that I selected this text. You can go and find, like, this This idea is, um, it just permeates throughout Scripture, right? You see it in all kind of places. There are many places that we could have, that we could have started here. Um, I started in Romans chapter 8 because one, like, I love this book. Y'all know that. Uh, Two, this is the most comfortable starting place for me, honestly. (laughs) Um, And three, I don't know that there's any place in Scripture where it is dealt with um, more completely. Um, So I think I think digging in um, here is is the best place to start. I don't like I say I don't know where we go in the coming weeks. I don't know how long we kind of press into this. I'm just kind of asking that the Lord lead us in, lead us in this until um, we are um, uh, unified together. Not necessarily that we agree in in all things, um, but that but that um, but that in all things that we agree that God's word is where we should uh, seek first. This. Mm-hmm. And then there's outlying circles. We're not all going to agree on all those circles. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we agree that the most important part is that God gets all. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's, the, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is not a a central to worshiping together. Yeah. Unfortunately, oftentimes it becomes that. It does. Right. It does. But this is this ought not be. The type of doctrine that we say, okay, you're a believer, I'm a believer, but we're not going to worship in the same 
place, right? That's not the type of doctrine that this is. And I believe that um, believers coming here openly, honestly, transparently, um, and, and working through these realities together, being brothers and sisters in Christ together, I, I believe that us working through these difficult subjects like this help us not to build these straw men uh, against the other side, right? It sharpens both sides. Yes, yes, it does. For sure. Maybe even anti-gospel yeah. at times. You know, we can get so rigid that we can push people away. Yeah. So I think it's such a beautiful thing that yeah. we talk about it. And there was a time in my life when I would. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it. well, I, I think what has happened historically is um, when we approach this subject, like we are like, Lord, help us with this. We are prideful. As much as we would like to say that, that we've got that handled, like, you want to be right. I want to be right. Listen, that's good. That, that's good. We ought to be, like, the, the fact that we want truth is good, right? We ought not sacrifice truth for being right, though. Right? Because that, that's, that's what can happen. We can want to be right so much that we become calloused against truth, or we only can see things through a certain lens. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you speak to the sense of like the danger of that? Yeah, I, I, I think that the reason that historically this idea, there has never been in church history a time where these the two major camps had not pressed forward in church history together, right? Now we see at the Reformation the Reformed understanding really rise to prominence and kind of dominate um, the like theological realm there, right? Like the, the realm of like the ivory tower, okay? Um, we, 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 we see that happen. Um, and I think there's, there's probably historically reasons for that, um, but let us not miss that both camps, any camp here, is extrapolating a framework from the text. Now what has happened is, 
and I'm not going to say I'm not going to say which, um, but certain camps have elevated their framework to the level of status of Scripture. Okay, in such a way that that they would speak of it as though to disagree that Scripture might say this or that would be to be heretical in your understanding of the text. Anyone who has gone to that extreme, you should, one, be in God's Word enough so that you can hear what's coming out of their mouth. Like, be discerning about such things. That's not to say don't listen to them at all, but to understand that we are all flawed. I am flawed. There will be times in heaven where God is showing me truths that I thought I had on lock here on earth. From this text, from this text, and my pride would say in me, I don't know that there's anyone who can dig through this better than me. Right? And yet, when I stand before Jesus, He will show me the errors of my ways. Right? So even as we together dig through this, pay attention to those places where I still fail in, hey, don't you see that the text says this? Maybe it does. And the Holy Spirit ought to be working in us when I speak truth, right? To bring us together in this. So um, as we kind of dig into this, what I want us to look at, and probably the third major reason that I selected this starting point is the reason that he's going into this subject at all, okay? So at this point in the book of Romans, the gospel has been laid out. Okay, He is now churning through the ultimate... Like in chapter 8, we get our promises as believers. Okay, Go into the Old Testament, you see promise after promise after promise after promise of what God would do for His people. Right? And faith is placed in that. Hope is is placed in the promise maker. That he will be a promise keeper, right? That the promises that he's laid out, that he is fully capable of bringing them to completion. He lays those out throughout the Old Testament. And we see the culmination of that in the work of Christ on the cross. And now the gospel message is going out and, and people are hearing it, right? And people are believing it. And now now there's a new hope that's being placed out there for us. Promises for us. That when you lay in the grave, that's not the end. right? When you lay in the grave, you will be with Jesus immediately. But that, my friends, is not the end. The ultimate end is to be as Christ is now. That is embodied resurrected our hope is in the resurrection and that hope of all hopes the only way i mean unless you're here when he comes back right and then you'll be transformed but you go through death to get to this hope you you in all likelihood unless christ comes back in our lifetime we will all die in this hope, 
And the question then that comes for anyone who clings to hope is what is my hope in? And is it a hope that I can trust in? So he lays the gospel out. This gospel from beginning to end by the work of God in Christ brought to us through faith worked out by the preaching and the movement of the Spirit within us. And now we believe. Right? Now we believe. And yet death has faced other believers around us. We know. And they hope in the promise maker that when we lay our head to rest for that final time here that there will come a day where I lay eyes on each and every one of you if you're a believer again and that we worship the lamb who was slain but raised from the dead okay now the question that should come up for you is will he keep those promises that he's made and what if I could point to a case for you where he seems to have failed? I've laid out this massive promise. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 8. And then 9, 10, and 11 is, is meant for us not to be something that causes us to divide amongst each other, but meant to be something that solidifies us in the hopes that are laid out in chapter 8. Ask yourself as you're reading, not just like picking and choosing Scripture throughout, like, like, but reading through entire books from beginning to end. Why now? Why here? Why does this subject of all subjects come forward after he's laid out the gospel so clearly to us? And it's not to cause division. It's to cement us in the understanding that God did not fail Israel. Because that would be the question. You'd be like, oh, like the naysayers would say, oh, he's going to keep the promises that he's making to you. Look at the nation of Israel, though. What about his people? Wouldn't it seem as though he could pivot on a dime? That's the answer that Paul's trying to put forward in 9, 10, and 11. Right? That's the purpose of him bringing this subject up. It's for those who would say, it would seem to me that he could fail. Right? Like, didn't he select a people for himself already once before? Didn't he? Who would you call that? Wouldn't you call that the people of Israel? How many of you are Jews? No hands raised? So, so what you're telling me then is that the God of Israel has failed Israel and you want me to hope in that same God that makes promises and seems to fail in His promises? Is that what you're telling me? Like that's what He's trying to lay out here. Okay? That's the context in which we find this. Are y'all following with me? Okay, so as we read into this, I want us to read chapter 8 because we see so clearly the promises that have been laid out, the hope that we have that nothing in all creation could stand against God's people. Right? And then 9, 
10 and 11. Difficult as it may be, if you're looking for that foundation of hope for how you can know that God will not fail in that, look there. It's difficult because oftentimes, even myself, like we get there and we're like, there's so much difficulty in that text that it's easier just to like go around it, go to the end of chapter 11, and then continue on through chapter 12 because what we read in 9, 10, and 11, it is difficult for us to grapple with, okay? It's difficult for us to grapple with, but we should not avoid it because of that. So let's stay close to the text here. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 1, though verse 1 may not necessarily be like the most, uh, like we're still breaking with the flow of thought a bit that's coming out of chapter 7 there, but um, but, but so be it. We only have so much time. <laughs> uh, so chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemna- condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot for those who are in the flesh cannot please god you however verse 9 you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him but if christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live verse 14 for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. These are promises. Like these, like what hope is it that you are co-heirs with Christ? You who you bring only sin to the equation, co-heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I want you to see here that oftentimes our view of what our hope is is somewhat limited. God is redeeming all creation in the work of Christ here. Right? Creation waits subjected to futility here. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So that's that resurrection hope there in verse 23. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Now, I want you to understand that the hope that he's speaking of here is the resurrection hope because he's speaking to the saved here, right? Now, hope that is seen is not hope. So it can't be like we've tasted salvation. You've experienced as a believer the Holy Spirit. You're not awaiting those things. Like there's another hope that we're looking towards here. Now, the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we find ourselves here waiting for the completion of the work that God is doing, the redemption of all creation here. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. At the resurrection, how much more perfectly could we hope to be conformed to the image of Christ? Like We hope for this day, right? He has, in fact predestined us to that being conformed into the image. Now, we're not going to dig into that um, today. We'll, we'll come back to that. But I want you to see here what he's doing. And, and he's been doing this throughout the book of Romans. Like, he doesn't just like, like, new paragraph, here's a new idea altogether. He, from one to the other, chains these thoughts so beautifully together, right? And he's, he's laying the groundwork here in chapter 8 for what he's going to be digging into more deeply in chapters 9, 10, and 11, right? He's laying out this idea of uh, predestination, being predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, right? So in order that we might be 
the firstborn among many brothers. So what is the, what is the goal that he's pointing to here? What is that work of predestination pointing to? What direction is it pointing in? Whose glory? Okay. So this work that God is doing, ultimately it's pointing to Jesus, right? Whatever this thing is, the ultimate aim of it is the glory of Christ, right? And verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. I, I want you to pay special attention to the way in which he speaks about our state as believers, right? Like, look at, are you, are you in your glorified body yet? Yet, he can speak with such assurity that he can call you glorified, past tense, glorified, right? How can you have such a hope that can't be derailed? How can you speak so confidently Right, and this ought to be like if you if you were fully immersed in the context of what was going on during this time, I don't think that it would be so e so difficult for you to see how you would start questioning when everyone around you starts seeming to be like, well, all of the Jews seem to have been passed up right here, and you're speaking with such assurance such assurance that this thing's going to play itself out. Like we ought to see that there's some tension here in um, in what would be going on in the minds of those who understood from what lineage Christ came and the people who were um, coming to him, right? And how it, how, it would, how it would appear to the outside world as though the people that he came for primarily or first seemed to have missed the boat altogether and how this would, in some regards, be a blemish when you're presenting this. It's like your own people don't even... They can't even get on board with this. And, and yet Paul speaks with such confidence for us as believers to the hope that we have that he can speak to us who have been saved um, as also those to whom God has justified, he also has glorified. Verse 31, let's continue on here. So he's laid out promise after promise through this text. He's put forward such great hope for us here and he only doubles down on this hope through the last half of of this chapter verse 31 what then shall we say to these things for if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, notice him sprinkling these, these words in here that he kind of goes into more deeply later on. It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is it or who is, it, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, so tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What hope he has in this text. What firm foundation of assurance he has in this text. And now let's go into 9. And I want, us, I want us to pay close attention to how he starts into this. Okay, um, We're just going to kind of read it. We'll come back to this. We'll probably start in 9 next week. Um, so 9-1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I could, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are all Israelites, and them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed okay so what he's going to go into here is showing us no 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 god has not failed to those who would say it seems as though god has failed israel paul is saying here no you never saw what he was doing to begin with it is not as though the word of god has failed and then he goes into that afterwards. But I want us to pay close attention to the way he starts chapter 9 off. What does Paul says something in the beginning of chapter 9 that ought to take us all back. It ought to cause us to pause. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. When I read that, I say, Paul, man, you are borderline. Because you almost seem to be saying there that you have a greater love for them than you do for God. Right? You wish you could be accursed? Who amongst us would rather hail than the lost? Who, who amongst you would trade your position in heaven for the lost? Who? Like, we feel that's a dangerous territory to be stepping into. Who among you believe that a man can love the fallen more than God? Who? D does any of us think that Paul loved the lost more than God loved the lost? So when we approach this subject... Let us not think that those who believe us free seek to bring down the glory of God. Okay? And on the other side, let us not think those who struggle with this idea and how it relates to the lost, let us not think that you love them more than God loves them. Because you do not. You do not. You cannot. 
None of you would give up your place in heaven. None of you would even dare think the thought. So as we approach this and we see Paul going there, let us not think that he is putting forward some impersonal truths that he has not wrestled with. Right? Let us also not think that when we dig into this, that it is not going to be difficult in both directions, pulling on our hearts. That is the reaction that Paul starts off with in 9. Right? This is not easy territory that we are treading into. We should be humble as we come here. We should ask God to work in our hearts as we dig in here. Um, we're going to stop, and then we will come back next week, and, and we'll begin um, here in chapter 9, digging digging into this. I would ask you to go ahead and read chapters 9, 10, and 11. Um, we're probably going to be here for a minute.